Well, hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us again for another episode of That All Might Be Edified, Discussions on Servant Leadership. I'm here with Trevor Hughes, and I'm really excited to have a conversation with him. Our paths crossed a few years ago, and we've stayed in touch ever since as we watched each other continue to progress and grow and move on in our journey. And so to get to touch base with him again and to share his voice with all of you is just a special privilege for me. So now let me tell you a little bit about Trevor. So Master Chief Hughes is a native of South Portland, Maine, where he spent most of his youth sailing the waters and exploring the islands of Casco Bay. He began his military service in 2002 after working as a contractor for the Atlantic Strike Team during the World Trade Center recovery operation following the event of 9-11. During his 19 years of service, he has served in the Coast Guard's incident command system structure during response operations for the Deepwater Horizon incident, Hurricane Sandy, and was the Coast Guard safety officer during the response to the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing. On occasion, he has also traveled over to seas to provide incident management training to our partners within the international maritime community. Master Chief Hughes' previous tours include the Coast Guard Cutter Healy, Sector San Francisco, Marine Safety and Security Team San Francisco, Sector Boston, Marine Safety Unit Cleveland, and Training Center Yorktown. He's a proud graduate of the Coast Guard Chief Petty Officers Academy and Coast Guard Senior Enlisted Leadership course, where he had earned the Donald Horsley Selfless Leader Award. He holds a master's degree from Duke University in environmental management with a focus on environmental leadership. He lives in Bainbridge Island, Washington with his wife, Annika, and three children, Kyla, age eight, Rowan, age 10, and Grady, age 12. Now, it was one of these international trips that I first met Master Chief Hughes. During the government shutdown, the Coast Guard wasn't getting paid, and they needed to send a team to the Philippines to teach incident management and emergency response and how we do things and how we can prepare for disasters. And they had a difficulty time finding people because of the government shutdown. And so I put a team together last minute. We didn't know each other. We showed up on site and we just had a wonderful experience. It was a great team all together. We just gelled together. We built off each other's strengths and supported each other's weaknesses. But in addition to the three of us that were U.S. Coast Guard members, the Filipino team that we were teaching was incredible. They had a senior officer in their Coast Guard, a captain, that was just one of the most brilliant examples of servant leadership. And hopefully we'll get her on the show at a later date. And they also had a leader in their customs and border enforcement. And both of them were just so attentive to our needs as the instructors and also to the needs of the Filipinos taking the class and working to help make sure that those with poor English got the right materials and translations. And also that the class got together afterwards and that the learning environment was fun, but also challenging. And I just was so impressed by that. And we talked a lot about it as we went on these excursions, which the Coast Guard captain there from the Philippines graciously set up for us. So that's where I'd like to start just talking about what were some of your observations, Trevor, and we'll just talk about what we really thought was great about that opportunity. Yeah. So first, uh, thanks for having me, Keith. It's great to have this conversation with you and catch up. We've spent a while and it's always nice to have an opportunity to, to talk with a friend. In terms of the Filipino experience and the, the leadership they opened up for us, my biggest takeaway was how fluid our roles were. When you and I were up on a podium presenting to the class, talking to them about what we were the subject matter experts for and what they were seeking, which was crisis management, they were very respectful. They were very open with their questions and they allowed us to be the subject matter experts. That role flipped at the end of the day. Now they are our hosts taking us out into the city, taking us to tall volcano, taking us out into the night market, 
And in those opportunities, they were the leaders. It was such a humble approach to give us their ears, to give us their eyes, to allow us to take the stage and to present to them. And then in the evening, we were learning from them and listening to them. They opened up their communities. They took us out into their their culture. I loved that experience because the whole thing was just such a humble approach, an opportunity I will treasure forever. Yeah, I agree. And as you were talking, it totally reminded me that they also had just in the recent time period had developed their own incident management handbook there in the Philippines. And they shared that with us. And I remember thinking, how wonderful is it that they're willing to be humble enough to take their new product and not be afraid of what we might say, but to share it with us and to truly want positive feedback. And what I really appreciated about our team, Jordan Frederick being with us as well, is that we really took the opportunity to look at theirs and look for the differences, but not from a way of superiority, but a way of like, what do they do differently and how can we gear our instruction towards what they need? I think we just did it naturally, but it was part of that fluidity that you talked about that we didn't care about the roles. Instructor, student, we were just there to learn and help each other get better at preparing for incidents and to manage those disasters. So what a good positive thought to move forward as we think about how do we take our processes and put our pride in check a little bit and really like, all right, what can I learn? How can I make this better? Yeah, exactly. And you mentioned it. You said that their willingness to be vulnerable. That's so key in my approach to leadership. That willingness to be vulnerable is so essential. And you also hit on another thing, and it's that being genuine, being open and honest and really presenting your best self, even if you know that that best self or best product is vulnerable to criticism. And it's only in that vulnerability that we're providing ourselves opportunities to grow and looking at their willingness to open up their product, their new shiny thing for criticism or for feedback, whether or not it's a positive or for a Delta, let me know that they were genuine in their desire to grow as crisis managers and responders. So it wasn't them just going through the motions. They weren't just checking the box. They were so willing to grow in that area. They were open to criticism. And it, you just mentioned that idea of them being vulnerable. I think that is critical to leadership um, at every level, whether or not it's your first time out of the gate or whether or not you're going through the leadership continuum for your fourth or fifth time. Yeah, I was just exposed to a thought on that regard, and it talked about having councils as opposed to having meetings, where in a council you counsel together, whereas a meeting you just put forth an agenda. And one of the things it talked about, especially in our culture in the United States, is that we often will avoid conflict. We might hear an idea and we might not agree with it, but we don't have a better idea or we don't want to take on a more aggressive role in the process. So we just let that idea go. But if we really cared about putting forth that best product, we would speak up when we noticed something. And in the same token, like you mentioned, um, the vulnerability aspect, we wouldn't be afraid if someone challenged our idea a little bit because it would be under the guise of really coming with the best product. And looking back, I remember, I can't remember why we did it. And you might remember, but we switched up the teams before we went into the exercise phase of the course And I remember how quickly those, the Filipinos, and they were from the National Police, the Filipino Coast Guard, and their Customs and Borders offices. So three major organizations that didn't always work together. And I can't remember if that's why we mixed them up to kind of integrate them a little bit more or not, but we did it and then we integrated them. But I just remember watching them move together and becoming a team really quickly. 
because they allowed that to happen. They and they put some junior people in leadership roles. They they were really all focused on building up leadership, not those that had prior leadership experience. They kind of took a step back and they jumped in as as learners slash coaches, which I thought was just such a a valuable way to approach a learning environment. Yeah, and they seem to have adopted a lot of that leadership continuum that I find our organization has adopted, at least in the enlisted ranks, but in the officer side as well, where it's that lead self, lead others, lead change, and, and lead service is kind of how our organization has it broken down. And it's that that lead self where sometimes you are holding yourself back. And in that leadership moment where you are stepping down to let somebody else take the stage, that's when you are kind of blending that opportunity to lead self and lead others. And people notice that, you know, those are the sort of leaders that people want to follow. It's those moments, those opportunities that people find inspiration. And again, only speaking to my own leadership style and experience, it's through inspiration that we find that genuine drive to grow to take on more and to push ourselves past what we're comfortable with. And I can tell you the first time you're asked to facilitate a meeting or to take the stage, take the mic and stand up there and brief a command or lead a meeting, those are uncomfortable situations. But if the person that's provided that opportunity has also coupled it with inspiration to be successful, I think they have given you a a smooth glide path to success. And even if they get flustered and that meeting goes south, that inspiration survives. They want to come back. They want to try again. They want to grow. They want to meet the standard that that leader has provided. And so again, getting back to the idea of being genuine and being vulnerable, for me, that starts with being inspired. And that's exactly what you were just talking about, how inspirational it was, even from your perspective, to see those senior leaders step back and promote their more junior. Yeah, that's just a great thought. I want to take a step back and think about episode three of the podcast. For those of you that have been following along, you might remember. And those of you that haven't, please go back and catch up and listen to April. April said something that I think fits in here. She said, we don't talk, we don't tell, we teach. And when we teach, we inspire. And when we inspire, we change. And I think that fits really nicely with the thoughts you just paired that with to really inspire a culture of trust where people are more willing to be vulnerable. And I think that that kind of comes with your organization's architecture a little bit, not just the people you hire, but there's some structural things that need to be in place to build trust, I believe very strongly. And one of the things I was thinking about this week as I was thinking about talking with you and I shared some of these thoughts with you is how the architecture of the military creates the senior enlisted workforce, which they're very senior. Often they're very senior in their years in the service. They're senior in their years of experience. They have a lot to offer the organization and they fit into this interesting role where they're the the senior enlisted leadership. So they're of all the enlisted workforce, they're the boss. Then you get the officer corps and by a rank structure, Oftentimes, the officers are above the senior enlisted in rank per se, but they're way below them in experience. And so we've kind of naturally created this architecture that makes these senior enlisted leaders more apt to become servant leaders as they coach these junior officers to become more senior officers and as they build out the the junior enlisted workforce to then replace them. And as I think about it, the whole concept of a senior enlisted leader, if done correctly, I think by design is to essentially 
put themselves out of work by training everyone around them. And I really can't think of a better concept when it comes to servant leadership. Yeah. And as I look at how that's applied in my day-to-day work, uh, I would say that one of the most important aspects of that is the confidence I enjoy from the most senior in our organization. Now I'm talking about the captains and the admirals of the world. When I have a, a supervisor who in this instance would be a lieutenant or a lieutenant commander who is senior to me in rank, but junior to me in experience and time in service, there may be rub there, sure. And that would be natural. Uh, one would assume a civilian would look at that and say, well, there may be, be an issue, some static. In our organization, that's eliminated for the most part. Uh, in my experience, it is. It's, it's a seamless understanding. One of the reasons why that exists is because my lieutenant would walk by and see an admiral or a captain in my office talking to me. That lieutenant's not enjoying that same access. So it's the endorsement I enjoy from even the more senior people that I think reminds people of my value beyond just my rank, especially the rank of a subordinate. So in the outside world, I would say, outside in the civilian sector anyway, I would say one of the best things that people can do to open up that avenue for servant leadership is to provide a positive endorsement and a level of confidence for people that kind of transcends their rank structure or the hierarchy of their company and encourages people that have the more respected experience or better developed technical skills to step in and lead a superior of rank organizational structure. So again, that's not something that I enjoy on my own. It's something like you said, the system, the organizational structure provides, and it provides it every day that needs to be refreshed and renewed in the eyes of everybody I work with, where I, a very junior person can approach me, but also a senior person, and that there's no confusion in terms of where my status is in the organization just based on my rank or my office. That's a great thought, and I think there's a, a couple of things, probably more than a couple, but a couple that came to my mind uh, that we could talk about with that. The first one is when you endorse somebody, you are endorsing them to everyone around them, but you're also endorsing them to themselves, right? So they're getting this better view of their own potential. An experience came to mind when I was in E4, because I started out enlisted and then switched to the officer world, enlisted in the Navy and an officer in the Coast Guard. When I was in E4, a junior enlisted petty officer in the Navy, I was attached to Naval Mobile Construction Battalion 4. And we were getting ready to go to Iraq. We were doing all these trainings and we were getting ready and we were building things. And I was in charge of all the communications for what we called our air detachment, which the air detachment flies into a hot zone and they set up everything you would need to operate. So they're the, they're the advanced part of the fly out and everybody to get everything set up. So when everything arrives, logistically speaking, you can run all your combat support operations. And so I was the communications guy as an E4 for this advanced party. And they're having a senior leadership meeting with all the, the Navy CBs there. And the Lieutenant comes out and grabs me and says, Keith, get in this room. And I was, and it's all commanders and Lieutenant commanders. Cause the cap, the commanding officer of the CB battalion is an 05, a commander. And then most of the department heads are 04s or 03s, lieutenants or lieutenant commanders in their structure. And so an E4 is quite a bit removed from them in a Navy structure, the Coast Guard, that, that difference is a little bit closer, but it's still quite a bit removed. But I remember just being super intimidated and he stopped the meeting and said, I don't want to relay bad information. So I need 
Keith to tell us what we need to be able to communicate. Because if we can't communicate, we can't do anything. And that was electronically speaking communications, but I think there's a lesson there all throughout. If we, if we don't bring in the right people to facilitate communication up and down our organization, to inspire those people to have that audience, to endorse them, if we don't communicate that that's appropriate, then we don't have a structure, even if we bring in all the right people to build that environment. Yeah. And so that gets back to, and I mentioned it earlier, that leading self. And for me, I frame it as I'm a custodian to my rank. And maybe a more appropriate way to say it is I'm a custodian to the privileges I'm given in my organization. I can use them correctly. I can use them incorrectly. I can use them to inspire. I can use them to lead, or I can use them to push somebody out of the service that we may want to may have wanted to keep. And it's that idea of being a custodian to these privileges, a custodian to my rank, to my office, that reminds me it's not mine. I enjoy it, but if I'm not giving benefit to the people I work with, if I'm tarnishing the rank, if I'm tarnishing the privilege, then I'm doing more harm than good. And when I, when I leave the office, when I leave the rank, when I leave the privilege behind, is it better for me having had it at all? And it's that internal dialogue that keeps me wanting to answer the next call. It keeps me investing in myself. So I ride the ferry every day in and out of Seattle. It takes about 40 minutes. I've made a promise to myself that one portion of that ride every day, my morning commute will be spent on professional development. And I've built in that commitment to myself One, because I think I can keep it going. It's a battle rhythm I can sustain over time. It's only about half an hour, 40 minutes where I'm reading a professional development book because I can't have somebody come to me and think he's a good leader because of his rank. He's a good leader because of his office. If I'm not working on it every single week, every month, every year, I will lose my edge and I don't get credit for how I got the office. You know, if I was a good subordinate in my last job and I'm a good leader now, the person that steps into my door next, they don't know any of that. I don't get credit for what I've done before in this one individual's mind or in their hardship. You know, they, they may be in trauma. They may have suffered a tragedy. When they step into my office, all of what I've done in the past, I get no credit for. So I have to constantly hone my leadership skills and ensure that I'm at least still dedicated to answering the call that comes next. And that's one of the most important parts of my leading self is that reminder that everything I enjoy as a leader, I'm simply a custodian of. I should not tarnish it. And when people look back on our interactions, they should think maybe he wasn't, you know, still a flawed man as all leaders are, a flawed individual, but I, I did my best and I didn't let them down. We may have had to bring in other resources to find the answer, but I didn't go about my life thinking there, I'm a leader. I've accomplished being a leader. It's not like that. It is a constant work in progress. It takes a great deal of humility. Sometimes I go from leading self, leading service, leading change, and then I'm right back to having to lead self again. And it's that people think of leadership often as a trajectory, as a glide slope up or down. I think of it as a circle where I could start at one point, continue my growth in one area, and I end up right back to having to lead self. I read this interesting book by a woman named Jennifer Brown, who describes how to be an inclusive leader. And I like how she talks about it because it's based on being patient with yourself, 
being forgiving of yourself, but also breaking down this idea that, for instance, if I was trying to increase diversity and inclusion in the workplace, most people start up with what they're unaware of. Everybody starts to unaware, then they move to aware, then they move to active, and then eventually being an advocate or a champion. For some communities, I would say I'm already a champion. I'm an advocate and I'm a champion and I'm there. And for that, I would say it's the military community. I understand a lot of it. I can champion it. I can be an advocate for it. But then there are other communities I work in that I am only just becoming aware of. And then there would be some still that I'm unaware of. I, as a leader, have to allow myself to exist in different spots of that leadership continuum and be fluid without being too hard on myself, without being frustrated in myself that I step in one room, I'm an advocate, I'm a champion. I walk across the hall, I step in another room, I'm very much just there to listen because I'm not at that stage in my leadership development. That's just a wonderful, wonderful way to look at it. I often think of this glide slope that we project that we often overemphasize as what a true leader is. And I think like you mentioned that it's not appropriate in most settings as we grow and understand what good leadership is and what it does. And especially as we talk more and more about a job market that has a lot more movement in it and people are not as apt to stay in the same profession, we have to really look at leadership and understand it better because many, many studies are showing us that people leave bad leaders. They don't leave bad organizations. And so as we talk about that, it helps us to be aware that we have a lot to learn about leadership. And so I love the way that you debunk the glide slope myth of leadership, I'll say. I remember in episode two, Captain Hannah, who has had a remarkable career, he said, you have never arrived as a leader. And I was like, that is the perfect way to look at it. And you just visually, you gave me something to envision in my mind to see what that looks like. And I really appreciate that thought. And I was kind of thinking a little bit more deeper about that. It goes back to vulnerability, right? It, it goes back to recognizing that we might be in charge People might come to us, but we don't have to have all the answers. It's okay to say, I don't know. And actually, it's empowering to say, I don't know. But then to go find somebody who does, to work on it together, to come to the table, to build a council, not a meeting, where you bring the, the bright and the smartest people together. And especially in this rising generation, we have some real, real smart people. And I think they get a bad rap sometimes, as many people do as they get older and they, they think just because the generation's different, they're worse, but it's just that they're different. And we have to learn how to embrace and harness those differences to grow from unaware to be a champion and advocate where they can really grow into their own as a leader. And we can even more debunk some of these bad habits we've developed over the years through recognizing our, our gaps, our blind spots, our own weaknesses, and gaining the knowledge of the questions that we don't know. And I think that that vulnerability to do those assessments speaks to something else that we as leaders have to look at. And that's being honest with ourselves and controlling that inner dialogue. You know, there could be opportunities where you are feeling very bad about your leadership style or an experience that you've had, or you could be walking around cloud nine feeling great. And we have to make sure that the, the stories we're telling ourselves are true and accurate, and that we're not assuming for our rank or for our office that we have to be something we're not, or thinking that because 
somebody came to me, they're expecting me to be perfect. And it's controlling that, allowing the vulnerability, providing that accurate self-assessment. It really opens the doors. I, there's this poem by Henry Rollins. I don't know the whole thing. Uh, it's more of a story than a poem, actually. But he, he's a famous musician, had a lot of experience with critics and fans. And he talks about his relationship with weightlifting. And it's something I took away from it. He said, people can tell you that you are trash or they can tell you that you're a god. But if you want to know where you really stand, in his opinion, he would go to the gym. And he liked going to the gym because he would go to pick up 200 pounds. And 200 pounds is always 200 pounds. It doesn't matter if you sold out a concert last night or if nobody showed up at all. It provides that accurate snapshot of his standing with his strengths every time. And he said, you know, people will kick you. People will build you up. 200 pounds will never lie to you. And I thought, what a great way, what a litmus test or a, a standard for the truth we're telling ourselves. And that kept him kind of on track, he kept him from bumping into the, the rails a little bit more than I think if he didn't have that truth to constantly ground himself to and control that inner dialogue of the critics and the fans. So getting back to what I mentioned earlier and controlling that inner dialogue, I think that is maybe my saving grace because there will be opportunities where I shine as a leader. There'll be opportunities where I flop as a leader. I still need to be a leader tomorrow. And I need to be a leader for the next crisis that somebody presents me. And I can only do that if I constantly go back to what is true. And one of my truths is that I'm still a leader in progress. I'm working on it. I'm growing. Be forgiving with myself and allow those opportunities to come. Some great stuff. I, I went down a rabbit hole after my first guest with Lori. She gave me a recommendation. I'm going to have to look some of this up. I can't remember the names of a person, she listens to a podcast for how to be better at your own marketing yourself and how to promote things as I looked at how do I get the word out about this podcast? Because for me, it wasn't really about popularity. It was about, I've been blessed with amazing people in my life and I want to share their voices and their experiences like you and the guests that come before and the guests that will come after. And so for me, marketing wasn't so much about marketing the podcast. It was that I thought I had an, an obligation to share these gifts of mentors and people I've been blessed with in my life. And so that's what I was looking at. But as I, I couldn't find her marketing podcast, but I found this other podcast called Typology, more of a psychology or a personality assessment type podcast where they're talking about some really great information about self-assessment, being self-aware, really just took me in a totally different direction than what I was expecting. But you reminded me of it because the host of the podcast just finished a book, which he's just now releasing, you can pre-order it on Amazon is what he said about it's titled the stories we tell ourselves. He's an accomplished podcaster, has many, many viewers. He's written many books, you know, a famous guy. And he goes into this description about how he reached out to one of his mentors to get a recommendation for his book. And the mentor didn't respond back to him. So he starts going in this inner dialogue about, oh, this person must not want to endorse me. They must not want to do that. So I think you provided a valuable 200 pounds is 200 pounds. You know, we might not all go to the gym to find our truth, but we need to find our truth. We need to find what our 200 pounds is. It's always going to be 200 pounds so that we don't tell those stories. We tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of things that could be valuable or to overhype ourselves when we should really be asking for some help. 
And for me, uh, the, the 200 pounds is, is a metaphor for the people that hold me accountable for the good and the bad that I do. Um, in my rank, there are times where I feel very isolated. I feel like nobody would darken my doorway to provide me an unvarnished truth. And I seek those people out. And I, I enjoy several right now in my current position where these people will come to me and they'll say, hey, you missed the target there, bud. You got to do better. And they'll lay it out for me. Everybody in the audience could have been clapping. They'll come to me and say, hey, you missed it. Or the exact opposite could be true. I could walk out of a meeting or a counseling session. Everybody's head is hung low. And this person could come to me and say that you did what needed to be done. And thank you for doing it. So providing yourself, controlling the inner dialogue is hard. But if you can gift yourself other leaders who you value and trust their feedback from, you need to build in those closed loops. And that, that kind of helps with the forgiveness part too, especially if you can be an emotional leader like myself. If I walk away and people aren't feeling good about what I had to say, sometimes it takes another, it takes that 200 pounds to walk in my room and say, hey, good job. You, you did the right thing. I appreciate that. Well, I want to kind of wrap us up with one final little discussion and we'll let this go for as long as it needs to. But this kind of topic, as you were talking and when we were talking earlier, I talked about one of my goals of this whole entire podcast is to show people kind of, as you said, this glide slope of leadership is not the only path that servant leadership is an alternative way to view leadership. And there's other ways that are closely similar and talk about authentic leadership or transformative leadership. They're very closely related to servant leadership. And I'm not going to get into the nuances of all those in the show, because I think all of those growth along those paths are, are positive. I was reflecting on the difference between what we often teach, especially in a military community, and how we try to emphasize servant leadership and the conflicts that arise sometimes. And I was thinking about at the, the leadership development school that's in New London, Connecticut at the Coast Guard Academy. They often use the video, I think it's 12 o'clock high, and they use it to show not to get too invested in your troops. And I think about that all the time. And I'm like, this is such a wrong message, I believe, because if I become so invested that I shut down, then I'm not capable of being a leader anymore. But the opposite is also true. If I'm so uninvested that I can just send people to their death without a second thought, then I don't think I'm the person you want to be your leader either. And so I think about this quote that we talked about a little bit earlier about servant leadership and the attributes. It says, these include listening, empathy, healing, awareness, persuasion, conceptualization, foresight, stewardship, commitment to the growth of people and building community. And so I think the one I want to focus on is this building community. How do we teach people that it's okay, not just okay, that it's preferred to care about people in a way that we build a community, that we root out all forms of intolerance and accept people as they are and build this community? Because that's what I think true servant leadership looks like. Yeah, that's a great thought. And the first thing that came to mind was, and I'll tie it back to individuals, but I'm going to start with, with crisis management as an organization, something that I enjoy doing. And a lot of people may grind their teeth at this because I like drills and exercises. I like meeting somebody when it's not real. I like building trust and building relationships with the community that I may need to work with later on when it is not an emergency, when the bad thing hasn't happened yet. We'll drill and we'll exercise like it has, but it's that investment in trust 
It's that investment in community, it's that investment in understanding somebody's values, their priorities, their objectives that makes me efficient when it is a crisis. And I think in terms of those relationships, if I'm not doing that with my team, how am I to be an effective leader when they are in crisis, when they've suffered a trauma? If the first time they're talking to me about anything beyond our normal day-to-day work is when it's gone bad, I have too steep of a learning curve to get my feet under me, to gain traction and start moving that weight off of their shoulders. So as a leader, I can't afford to avoid that investment. And sure, it comes with some emotional vulnerability and that can be exhausting, but I need to live there. I need to find a balance and I need to know that if my team suffered a trauma, that they would see me as a resource they could turn to rather than I don't really know him. I know he's there. He says he's there. He says he's available, but we've never even talked really outside of work. I can't afford that. And I I think, especially in this past year, two years uh, nearly, where we've seen people go through this global pandemic and suffer trauma on one level or another. Some have lost family members. I got to this current unit in 2019. I had my team for about six to nine months before we all got separated by COVID-19 and went to our homes and teleworked or were this disaggregated work group. If I hadn't invested in getting to know my team initially, when we worked remote and then suffered a global trauma, I would have failed. They would have slipped through the cracks and maybe the bad thing would have happened. So I get that it can be emotionally draining. You know, we don't want to put ourselves up on the rocks for every single thing, but there are times where a little bit of vulnerability, a little bit of risk, risk management, not just risk acceptance, is not only a good thing, it's critical. And for me, if I lost that, I would not be ready for the next person to step through my door and ask for help. Yeah, I love that, love it. And that investment we make, is also an investment in people. We're training them, we're building them, but we're also learning about them. We're learning when they suffer a trauma as a result of the work or as a result of their personal life, we know the difference because we've invested in them and we can help pull them out of that trauma as opposed to moving on or telling them to suck it up or just forgetting about them or neglecting them and wondering why their work's decline in productivity because we notice those things. We notice the difference through that initial investment. And as many of us who work in disaster management and emergency management, you know that drills can be quite stressful, but the real thing is infinitely more stressful as you wonder, is my house flooded? Is there a tree on my house? How's my family doing? Did they evacuate in time? All these questions come up. And so you think about that you're living in this real life trauma, but you're just busy enough with the adrenaline to push through. It's when that settles down. If we're not mindful of what their baseline is going back to your 200 pounds, what their 200 pounds is, because when we invest in exercises and drills, we learn about other people's troops. If we don't do that, we might miss something and it could be catastrophic for them and for our organization. Yeah, and the drills and exercises when it comes to my team management is having lunch with them, having a cup of coffee with them, sitting down, getting to know them, asking them how was their weekend. It, those things, that gives me my baseline. That gives me the very thing that you're referring to. So when I see them going through the salad bar with their head down, I know to intervene. I'm like, hey, can I help you? Where where are you right now in your headspace? Maybe we just take a walk, but maybe we need to call in some other resource to help unpack something. And that's that's where I felt most at risk moving to the remote environment 
where everybody was working virtually because I lost the ability to sit with my team. You know, we, we do these webcam meetings and they're good, but they're not the same as sitting across the table. I lose body language. I lose the ability to pick up on those things. And some leaders may not need that, but the way I invest in my team and make sure that I'm ready for the next thing is by doing exactly that. Yeah, that's great. And I like the way that you branched out from an emergency management aspect and talked about your driller exercise could just be going to lunch or coffee or whatever it may look like. And so for this week's invitation, I'd like everyone to think about how they can create their own driller exercise to learn the baseline of their team and of themselves. And that driller exercise could be a legitimate driller exercise, or it could be just getting your team together and finding out, learning more about them understanding what drives them, not necessarily avoiding the topics that you often avoid, politics, religion, those things that drive people, they can be uncomfortable. But if we don't know the background, we can't be prepared for the catastrophic events that may arise. And we can't really move forward to the best of our ability. And it's also an opportunity in today's world to remind people where the line is, that there's always a line of appropriateness, of respect, of responsibility. No matter where you're at in an organization, there's a line. And as you have those conversations, you can help people recognize when they're getting too close to the line and you can step in early. In our organization, we have a phrase, there are no bystanders. And I really think that applies to everything that we've been talking about, all the things, creating these drills and exercises. Even if you're not intimately involved, in our world, in Trevor and my's world, we're not a bystander, we're a coach. We're always looking for a way to help people get better. And that's the power of drills and exercises. So build your own. All right. Any last thoughts, Trevor, before we wrap up? No, I just, uh, I appreciate the time and opportunity to speak with you, Keith. It's always, uh, always nice to, to catch up with the shipping. Well, I appreciate it. And thanks everyone for joining us. Please follow, rate, and review the podcast. It helps others find it. It helps other people hear these remarkable voices that we've been gifted in our organizations and that we can expose people to some wonderful examples that they can start to recognize the servant leader within themselves. And also please feel free to follow us on www.thatallmightbeedified.com where there'll be pictures and images to talk about the things we discussed on these podcast episodes and have a wonderful day.